Look, I'm grateful you found this podcast. But if you're listening to this because you think you might belong here, then my advice would be to stop right away. Listening to The Half-Blood Hill Show will only burden you with knowledge and insight about the riot inverse that will make you more of a target. After all, as we've been told, once you know the truth, then it's only a matter of time before they sense it too, and they'll come for you. But perhaps you're already known to them, and in that case, you've come to the right place. Join me, your host, Jared Shaw, as we dive deeply into the works of Rick Riordan, chapter by chapter, here on the Half-Blood Hill Show. So strap on your celestial bronze armor, sharpen your wit, and let the quest begin. Welcome back, everybody, to episode two of the Half-Blood Hill Show. I am so thankful that you are here watching the second episode of a project that is really special to me. I really hope you enjoyed episode one. It took a lot of work to get done, and I'm hoping that episode two will just continue to improve upon everything that episode one already did. If you are watching this on YouTube, it would mean a ton if you could like the video and subscribe. And if you are listening to this on an audio platform, please go ahead and rate the show five stars and leave a review if you feel up to it. That would mean a lot to me. Today, we are going to be talking about chapter two of Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief titled Three Old Ladies Knit the Socks of Death. So now let's get into it. As always, let's start with the summary. So the three old ladies knit the socks of death. This chapter begins by showing us the true power of something Percy will later learn. It's called the mist. And despite being at school for half a year, nobody from the adults to the students remembers ever knowing anyone named Mrs. Dodds. Everyone except for Grover, who seems to be getting nervous whenever she's mentioned. The Mrs. Doubtfire level of gaslighting is taking a toll on Percy as his mood worsens by the day, his grades following suit. He is informed that he will not be invited back to Yancey Academy the following year after an altercation with his English teacher, and while excited for the summer, he is sad to leave behind Grover. His finals, for the most part, will be a wash, but he doesn't want to let Mr. Brunner down and tries to study for his Latin exam. However, when, asked, when he asks for help, he overhears Grover and Chiron, or Mr. Brunner, talking about the importance of the coming summer solstice and how the mist impacts everyone's memory of Mrs. Dodds. Percy flees, only noting Mr. Brunner's shadow's oddness, and, trying, and tries to get some sleep. After the exam, Mr. Brunner stumbles his way into a very hurtful farewell as Percy and Grover board the bus back to the city. Percy begins interrogating Grover about the information he overheard until, as if on cue, the bus breaks down. As everyone gets off the bus, Percy spots three old ladies sitting beside a fruit stand, knitting a pair of giant electric blue socks. The three ladies appear to stare directly at Percy as one cuts the thread with a pair of giant gold scissors. Percy tells Grover, who becomes utterly filled with fear at the knowledge, with Percy asking a very terrifying question. Does that mean somebody is going to die? I think that as the secondary chapter of The Lightning Thief, it does everything I wanted. It takes all of the information we got from chapter one and builds more intrigue upon it. If you were familiar with Greek mythology... 
you would know that those three old ladies were the fates who are responsible for cutting the life threads of the people on earth however if you didn't know percy kind of informs you with that line saying does that mean someone is going to die once again showing that he is not completely clueless to the world of greek mythology and we are constantly dealing with the question of what is the mist why are chiron and grover hiding the truth from percy and what is going to happen now that percy has seen this thread cut is his life really in danger we also learn in this chapter about Camp Half-Blood for the first time. What is that? We know that Half-Bloods are something that Percy warned us about, but now we're getting introduced to them in a different type of light. Camp Half-Blood. Grover is a protector. It, it, asks, it causes us to ask even more questions, yet not getting us frustrated yet by where are the answers. With that kind of overview here, I do want to get into some of my major ideas, my major talking points about things I picked up on on this chapter through a reread that I'd like to discuss. So let's get into that. So honestly, the first thing I noticed through reading this chapter was that it was a lot sadder than I remember. Like, for example, I forgot how much, like, basically PTSD, Percy is suffering. It even says that, like, he is dreaming or having nightmares about Miss Dodds, and that he would wake up in a cold sweat almost every night. And, of course, the lack of sleep, as well as the fact that he knows Grover is lying to him, is causing Percy to grow angry. Uh, he even says in the text, But Grover couldn't fool me. When I mentioned the name Mrs. Dodds to him, he would hesitate, then claim she didn't exist. But I knew he was lying. If there's one person that Percy knows all the tells of, it's Grover. Also, Grover's not exactly the best liar in the world, but it does kind of frustrate me where it's like Grover and Chiron seem to see this effect that is happening to Percy, and yet they are not really stepping in to do anything, which kind of makes me wonder, you know, what is the end game here? Because it even says later that um, Grover and Chiron, this is when Percy is eavesdropping, Grover says... Um, uh, now that we know for sure, and they know too, Mr. Brunner says, we would only make matters worse by rushing him. We need the boy to mature more. But he may not have the time. The summer solstice deadline will have to be resolved without him, Grover. Let him enjoy his ignorance while he can. I, I don't know why. As a kid, I was like, oh yeah, of course, you know, let him be ignorant of it. But now as an adult, I'm like, what is the point? Percy's not ignorant to it. He knows it. It is terrifying him. And this idea that he can just go on enjoying this normal life now that he's seen what he's seen is kind of, like, misplaced. Additionally, when they say that now we know for sure and they know too, we are assuming that they are talking about the fact that we now know Percy is a half-blood. For sure. But I thought that we already knew that. So now I'm wondering... Is it at this point that at least Chiron and Grover have a pretty big understanding of what kind of half-blood Percy is, being a child of the big three? Is it that we believe that now they know that they believe Percy is the um, stealer of the lightning bolt? They can't believe that because Percy doesn't even know the Greek gods exist yet. So it has to be either... I just find it weird if it's just like now that we know for sure that he's a half-blood. I don't feel like that can be what it's referring to because... They knew that already. That's why they're there. Like, 
it has to be more of like we have a pretty strong idea that he is a child of the big three. The other thing that interests me here is that we know how this book plays out if you've read it before. And I'm wondering, what's the plan? Like, what's plan B? Okay, so plan A would be, or I guess Percy is plan B, like him getting ready and going and actually going on this quest. So what was the first plan? Just let the gods fight it out until they get bored and give up? I doubt that would happen. So, like, I'm really wondering when Chiron says, we'll have to be resolved without him, how does he imagine this is going to happen? Because I can't think of a way that this would be resolved without him, especially because earlier... It's literally talking about how Zeus and Poseidon are killing people without any, like, any resistance uh, or, or, or any moments of doubt. Like, so, Poseidon's petty, by the way. But anyway, one night, a thunderstorm blew out the windows in my dorm room. We know that is a, like, sign of anger by Zeus to Percy, right? However, seemingly in response to that, like Poseidon does this. One of the current events we studied in social studies class was the unusual number of small planes that had gone down in sudden squalls in the Atlantic Ocean that year. Is that Poseidon's doing? I feel like it's got to be, right? So in response to um, Zeus blowing out the windows of Percy's dorm room, Poseidon is taking lives and sinking planes, which is just so aggressive, and I don't understand what Chiron believes is going to happen to the world, that he's not concerned with getting Percy ready right away. Because I would be very, very, very concerned. Another kind of hint towards something about Percy's character <clears throat> is that Percy's general character is, on the surface, he seems to be a very mellow, like, whatever it is what it is kind of personality, while underneath it all having a very self-depreciating attitude and a little bit of, like, sarcastic frustration however this gives us the hint that much like his father he has the capacity to get very 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 angry and snap and so obviously you know not that humans can't snap but percy's snaps when he gets there are pretty intense like i went through just off the top of my head and jotted down some pretty like famous snapping of percy um nobody touches her where it comes to how upset he gets at Annabeth taking um, the injury for him that was going to go to his mortal spot. And the second is, of course, the choking of Achilles in um, House of Hades, where Percy is literally attempting to drown the god of poison in the poison that he has found a way to control. So Percy getting angry is not necessarily new to his character development, but... We're seeing this at, like, the entry level of his anger of something that is going to advance to be something a little bit more important. Like, typically, you'll see his anger in the way that he'll just, like, get irritated with people like Ares or Mars in the um, Heroes of Olympus series. But for him to actually get angry and do something about it is kind of, you know, when it happens, it can be pretty dangerous. However, talking about the other side of Percy, the more common side of Percy of him caring about the people that are around him and that he does want to be a good friend or a good student to uh depending on the relationship we get this really like kind of funny yet sweet scene where Percy is given up on all of his other classes but he still wants to try for Chiron for Mr. Brunner and we get a reference to the Cambridge Guide of Greek Mythology and one thing that I picked up on here that I didn't really pick up on when I was a kid reading this 
was that Percy mentions a, a, a mythological character called Polydictes, which is pretty cool because Polydictes is the grandfather of the mythical hero Perseus, who was uh, whose mother was shoved into the coffin and thrown out at sea because uh, Polydictes receives this prophecy that her, his son is going to, or his grandson will be the death of him. And that is why when, um, I think it's, is it Danae? When Danae gets pregnant with Perseus, let me fact check here. Yep, Danae gets pregnant with Perseus. She is thrown into the coffin and then thrown out to see where Zeus asks Poseidon, which funny that in this, in that myth, they are working together to guide Danae's body to safety so that Perseus can grow up and complete the prophecy that was given to him. So really cool mention there, real cool connection to Percy's real name, which is Perseus and the relation to his myth. Um, we learn this later, but Perseus is named Perseus because um, Perseus is the only character or one of the only few heroes in Greek mythology that does get a happy ending, which is not common. Obviously, we know um, most prominently the myth of Hercules, where he dies tragically at the end when trying to atone for his sins of killing his wife and children. Um, another like aspect of this, Percy trying for um, Mr. Brunner for Chiron, that made me laugh now that I'm a teacher, is Percy writing... I'd never asked a teacher for help before, and I know Rick was pulling from personal experience here because the amount of times I'll have conversations with students where it's like, oh, I didn't know that. And I said, well, why didn't you come to me and ask? And they're like, oh, yeah, good idea. I should have done that. I, I know, I know that came from, from, a, from a mounting frustration in Rick's heart about probably like, have you tried asking for help from the person who would be able to help you and i like that person comes to this realization like oh snap yeah i could ask for help about what i don't understand and i, I don't know why i've always found that interaction very funny now we get into the oddly creepy part of the percy jackson series for the first time and that is when percy eavesdrops and he learns a lot of important things in this eavesdropping conversation. He learns about something called the kindly ones that apparently Mrs. Dodds was. He learns about something that happened over Christmas that needs to be resolved in the winter solstice. He learns, or he believes, that because of the conversation he overheard, his life is in danger. And he learns that both Chiron and Mr. Brunner know about Mrs. Dodds and that she was real and not just a figment of his imagination all of which are super important in making Percy very, very, very scared. So on top of having to be afraid of taking these end-of-year exams, he's also worried because now he believes for some reason his life might be in danger and nobody is telling him why. Once again, a lot sadder than I remember. However, during this eavesdropping time, we learn two other kind of important uh, bits of information here we learn the name of the thing that causes all these illusions or causes all of this forgetfulness and it is called the mist and the mist's whole purpose is to hide the world of greco-roman mythology from the eyes of mortals of course we know there are some few mortals who have clear sight like rachel dare and sally jackson and most of the demigod um but like most of the lovers of the gods but we also learn the first mention of Grover's failure. And we'll later learn, apparently they never make it past sixth grade, but 
Um, we know we will learn much later in the series that that was a girl named Thalia who was a daughter of Zeus that was oddly enough attacked by I believe Mrs. Dodds as well. And Mrs. Dodds, I believe, is sent by Hades due to the fact that both Poseidon, or at least not, yeah, both Poseidon and Zeus have broken their pact to not uh, sire any more demigod children, while Hades has actually been very loyal to that promise, as he typically is. Anyway, the mentioning of Grover's first failure um, actually has, like, major implications to the story. For example, when Thalia is pulled out of the tree, when she is reborn from the tree using the Golden Fleece, she's 15. We'll later learn in this book about a great prophecy that says when a demigod child reaches 16, they'll have to fulfill this great prophecy. And so the fact that that could have been Thalia very easily, as a matter of fact, it could have been Nico even more easily if he was not currently, Nico or Bianca, if he wasn't in the Lotus Casino right now, um, has major implications for who the main hero of this story could have been because it did not have to be Percy. It just happened to be Percy. Um, I like that Rick will introduce that mystery later where it's like, you know, obviously we're following Percy Jackson. Obviously we know that Percy will be the hero of the story. But the those moments of doubt where Percy is desperately wishing for someone to come take that weight off him and to have it given to him and then taken away a couple times is pretty amazing. And so it's a really interesting through line of the story. The next question that I have that I'm really posing to you guys, the viewers, is why did it take Mr. Brunner so long? Why did it take Chiron so long to identify Mrs. Dodds through the mist? If he has clear sight, like all the demigods, we talked about this in the last episode, I theorized there that it was because Percy did not know who he was, and maybe before you know who you are, your sight is not as strong. However, Mr. Brunner definitely knows who he is. He has been in this world his entire life. He was born as a part of that world. So why is it that Mrs. Dodd's ability to manipulate the mist is so strong that even Mr. Brunner cannot see through it? I'm very interested in how is that possible? Um, and if so, was the... Fury was the Fury receiving help from maybe Hecate who could overview, like who could overrule, maybe even the sight of someone like Mr. Brunner. I don't know, but I do find it odd that after all that time Mr. Brunner spent with them, uh, spent with Mrs. Dodds, he did not recognize her, especially because I think Mr. Brunner sees Mrs. Dodds before when Thalia, Luke, and Annabeth are running up the hill. Um, also. Going back way earlier to when I was talking about the fact that Grover says, now that we know for sure and they know too, I'm wondering if Mrs. Dodd's attempt to kill Percy skews Chiron's theory of Percy's birth. If so, if that's true, like we said earlier, if he now believes Percy is a child of the big three, what is the purpose of not coming clean and just assigning Grover to be the protector of Percy? Because I really heavily doubt that Grover is going to throw hands with the monsters that might be coming for Percy now that everyone seems to be set on the fact that Percy is a very important demigod child. It seems like it would be safer for Mr. Brunner to just reveal where he is, go with him to the apartment, talk to Sally, say, hey, your son just got attacked by a very powerful monster. It's time to go. I'm sorry. Like, I know that you love him. You know you want to keep him close to him. He can still come back to you. Um, you know, once he's done training for the summer, we got to take him now because he might be involved in something pretty dangerous and needs to get needs to sort the situation out. 
obviously a little bit like hands off, a little bit laissez-faire. Um, doesn't really take into consideration the fact that Sally is a mom who loves her kid. But in that situation, it feels like for both the safety of Percy and um, Olympus as a whole, he would come clean. It reminds me very much of the way that like Dumbledore didn't want to tell uh, Harry the truth about what. So like, you know, after the after learning that Voldemort took the blood of Percy of, of goodness, the blood of Harry into his uh, veins, you know, Dumbledore gets very excited about the fact that per, uh, Harry might have a way back, but doesn't tell him because he's grown to one doesn't want Voldemort to look into his mind and hear about the prophecy. And two, he's grown to love Harry a lot over the years that they've known each other. However, from what I understand, Chiron has not known Percy that long for love to be such a factor that he would hide the fact that Percy's life is in great danger. I feel like he would be a lot more pragmatic about the information. He's always come off as a little bit more of a pragmatic um, of a pragmatic mentor figure. And so I think that this is very strange for him not to come clean here and just expect Grover, who's already failed to protect a member of the Big Three's children, to do it again. It just does not make sense to me if we believe that Chiron now is very much hedging on the fact or very much betting on the fact that Percy is Poseidon's kid. However, or sorry, not however, because don't not really uh, a counter argument, but tangentially to the conversation with um with Chiron, Percy's eavesdropping this. And so he's scared. He drops his book and we get to see a form of Chiron come out of the uh, come out of the uh, the office. And I love the foreshadowing of this. Obviously, when I was reading this, I wasn't a big Greek mythology fan. I was like, who is Chiron? What is him half-blood? What what's up with Mr. Brunner? What's hiding? Um, but obviously, we learned that Mr. Brunner is a centaur. And I love the fact that like his shadow does not match someone who is wheelchair-bound. And I love the clop, clop, clop sound effect um, to kind of like hint at the fact that yeah, no, Mr. Brunner is not just some guy in a wheelchair. There's more to him than um, what was originally portrayed. And he has a kind of a very important role. Um, and, and I love that, that just hinting, that subtle hinting at what Chiron actually is. So Percy leaves. He runs to his dorm room, but he waits a little bit so it doesn't look like he was eavesdropping on Chiron and Grover. And when he comes back to the dorm, Grover immediately notices that Percy is struggling with something. And so this actually ties into something that will become a major plot point of book two later. But it's the fact that both Grover and Percy are very understanding of one another's emotions, feelings, um, you know, things that are bothering them. And I believe that that is the reason why in book two, they are they have the capacity to form a empathy link. Um, I read on the wiki that it is a connection between a fawn or a satyr and their demigod protectorate, or, or uh, yeah, the demigod protect who they're supposed to be protecting. And so it's interesting that, or it just goes to show that it's not just any demigod and any satyr because, um. Grover was also Annabeth's protector, but he does not have an empathy link with Annabeth. He was Percy's protector. They became very, very close. They understood each other. And that is why Grover was able to form an empathy link with Percy, with obviously very dangerous uh, conditions to it that I would not be okay with. But Percy's a better person than I am. So, you know, we'll let that one slide. 
And then finally, with no sleep at all, Percy has to go take all his tests. And like he predicted, he failed most of them. However, his Greek and Roman text, as his, his Latin test goes a little bit worse than I think that he expected. And he writes about how the fact that, let me get the quote exactly, because this did stand out to me. Where is it? The next afternoon, as I was leaving the three-hour Latin exam, crazy, by the way, three hours is intense. What was this, an AP exam? My eyes swimming with all the Greek and Roman names I misspelled. Mr. Brunner called me back inside. Okay, we're about to address what Mr. Brunner says here, but the one thing that popped out to me is Roman, the Latin names, I understand why Percy would have a hard time reading and spelling. But why the Greek names? Is it because he was writing in English and so it doesn't apply to him? And like it's only if his only if it's being written in ancient Greek that it works for him? Because like Greek in theory is his like mother tongue. I guess it would be his father tongue, because it's like literally built into his brain to understand Greek. And so it is kind of funny that he seems to even struggle with that. And I have to assume it's because he's writing in English that it's happening. But I'm, I, you know, you would think the names would translate over, but I guess not. And going into that speech, Mr. Brunner, one of the worst speeches I've ever seen a mentor give uh, a, a mentee character. Like, every mistake that Chiron could have made, he was making. This is not the right place for you. You don't belong here. You couldn't hang here. Like, this is not you. It's better that you're gone. Like, how is this man leading a camp? Like, this is what a terrible speech to give somebody who's already feeling down on their luck. Like, where is the, hey, you know, I saw that you tried your best. I'm proud of you. Sorry things didn't work out here. I'm sure you'll find a school that works for you. Whatever, lie, whatever. Like, it's just crazy to me that this man says, yeah, you don't belong here. Get lost. And, and then he's like, oh, probably shouldn't have said that. Didn't come out the way I thought it would. Uh, and I'm just like, Chiron, like, you didn't script this. You didn't, like, think about what you were going to say. What was the important points you needed to get across to Percy? Because it seems kind of important that you should have done that and does not do any of it. Once again, building into the surprisingly sad undertone of this chapter, one on a, on a, on a happier note, I guess. Let's, let's shift it to a happier note. One thing that I did come up with, is this the second time, this chapter is the second time that we learn about Percy hustling, like Percy selling things or doing jobs to make some money. He talks about like, walking dogs and selling magazine subscriptions in the summer and so you know it's not uncommon for you know middle school boys to want to make some money because they're like oh i want to buy this video game i want to buy these shoes i want to buy this i, I want to buy this this t-shirt whatever it is right um so i remember you know kids hustling in in middle school selling their candies and stuff but it actually i believe comes from percy's desire to lessen the weight on his mom's shoulder the fact that he is doing all of this to want to probably help his mom pay the rent because his stepfather, Gabe, who we do get first mention of in this chapter, and we'll talk about a little bit more in chapter three, is useless and actually gambles away a ton of the money. And I've always like, I guess I've always thought to myself, like there's a line where Percy or Gabe asks Percy if he has any money when he comes in. And initially, I guess I forgot this. And I was like, where is he getting the money from? And it's because this man is selling candy out his dorm room. Like, he is hustling to make some money. And I just, 
I love how this all ties back to the fact that like if there is one thing per if there is one person Percy at this point, obviously we can learn later there are more, but if there is one person in this book that Percy is willing to go to absolute war for and fight gods for, which he will do later, it is his mom. And that no one touches his mom. His mom is the most untouchable thing in the world to him, and he wants to keep her safe and protected and make her life as any easier as he can. And I think that's just like a very beautiful relationship because typically heroes of stories are orphans um, or have terrible parents that, so that we don't have to worry about the parent. And I like that Riordan plays this role of making the parent and making the child have such a great relationship that they actually become sources of strength for each other, which was very rare for this genre um, being young adult fiction. And now, I said earlier... After this terrible speech, Percy's excited to go see his mom. He boards the bus and he goes off. And now that they are away from people and using the information he knows, he springs on Grover the questions. What are kindly ones? What am I? Am I in danger? And Grover, finally, without the support of Chiron to back him, concerned about what's going to happen to Percy over the summer if he doesn't know, makes the executive decision to tell Percy that he is Percy's protector and inform Percy about Camp Half-Blood, a place for him to go if he is in danger. And so, one thing that is hilarious about this card, and I don't know what what Riordan meant by this, but on the, on the reference card of Camp Half-Blood, there is a phone number. And it's always stuck out to me as why is there a phone number? Demigods can't use phones. Uh, if you don't remember from the mythos of this universe, Phones act as a big calling beacon to monsters that basically say, hey, I'm a demigod here, come eat me. And so I'm wondering, like, you you would figure that was it would be something like send a letter instead of call because, like, so in order to protect yourself, call this camp that is going to attract monsters to come get you. Uh, additionally, the number is odd to me. The number stuck out as odd to me. So it's 800-009-0009. And so I looked that up in trying to reference Greek mythology, either 009 or 9. And the only reference to the number 9 I found was, of course, the 9 muses. I don't know if that has any relationship or if Riordan was just trying to pick a number that he didn't expect anyone would call. Um, but, you know, like... I. I, I don't understand why it would be a reference to the Nine Muses, but it's the only thing I could find with Nine in it, so please let me know if I'm missing something here. Um, but building off the oddity of that scene, when Grover tells Percy that he is his protector, I do love Percy's immediate response being like, to protect me from what? I'm the one protecting you. What are you going to do? And yes, it is hurtful, but Percy is also very, very upset and he is very, very, like, worried. And I don't think that, like, people really... it The, the level of stress that this 12-year-old kid must be under right now is, is insane. And actually, you know, you got to give credit where credit is due. He could have been a lot meaner to Grover in that moment. And yet he decides to do, I would argue, the less painful thing, which is just ditch him at the end of the book or at the end of the... or at the start of chapter three. Because if I was Percy... I cannot say that I would have had the kindness to just leave it and not question it any further, especially with the way that Grover had been hiding things from me the entire year. And now finally, we get to the big end of this chapter. It is such an important thing that happens, and it is crazy 
that for something that will affect the book series for the rest of its time up until the last Olympian, it is something that is introduced in chapter two. And that is that Percy sees the fates, the three ladies, knitting a sock and then cutting the thread, signifying the death of somebody. And Percy sees this because the bus breaks down and they're forced to leave. And as he's looking across four lanes of traffic, he is able to, he says he is able to hear the core, the thread snip across four lanes of traffic, meaning this had to have been planned. The fates had to have knowingly caused the bus to break down. They wanted Percy to see the string, which is interesting because theoretically, this is all still up in the air about who the hero will be. But I guess these, the three ladies do know the fate of everything because they make the thread of everything. Um, and so, you know, I, I originally had this question written down, which was, was the plan always to have Percy see the string being cut? And if so, who organized it? So I think, yes, the plan was always to see the string, Percy to see the string getting cut. I think it was supposed to be a message to him. However, who organized it? I actually don't know. Because the fates aren't actually supposed to intervene with human beings. Like, they, I mean, they cut the cord and that's it. Like, they knit their lifeline and that's all they're responsible for. They're not actually allowed to give warnings or do anything to extend the life of a, of a human being. I am really interested because we learn much later in the series that those socks are not, um, those socks are not for Percy. That threat is not for Percy. And so I am wondering if in the series... We know that Percy has offered gifts of immortality. And I'm wondering if, like, in the string, in his life string, do you think there are ever moments of, like, faint gold in his string where it's like he could have become immortal here and he does not choose to do so? I would, I think that would be a really cool, um, a really cool addition if one day we got to see Percy's, like, life string and see all the times that he could have been immortal and chose not to. We also see that clearly dipping into the um, River Styx doesn't do anything notable to your thread because we know that both himself and Luke will dip into the River Styx and there is nothing that seems to happen to your thread when you get the Curse of Achilles, which I still feel like would have been a cool thing to do, but I also don't know if Rick had planned that plot point out all the way yet. So, you know, we're going to give him a pass on that. Although... We learn from the jump that Percy loves the color blue, okay? And so the string being electric blue is something that, you know, leads the reader to think, oh, snap, that thread is Percy's because Percy loves blue. That thread is blue would make sense, right? But I did come to the realization that there is something about the wording electric blue as the color of the string that is very interesting, given that that is the same way that Thalia's eyes are always described in the book. And we learn that Luke and Thalia had a romantic relationship before Thalia gets turned into a tree. I believe it is in the Titan's Curse where we learn a little bit more about it, where Luke even says that he likes her. And that one look from Thalia's blue, electric blue eyes can get him to do anything she wants. And so... I do find it kind of kind of sad that the color of Luke's lifeline is the same color of Thalia's eyes. And I feel at some point that has to be intentional. 
on Rick? And if so, that really just emphasizes the tragedy that is Thalia and Luke's um, love throughout the entire series. And finally, the last thing I noted here was that when Grover sees the, or when Percy tells Grover about what he saw, Grover does this gesture with his hand. Um, and it's something like this, like three finger claw that when I researched it is used to ward off evil. And I always found that odd because much like Hades in mythology, it's odd because the fates and Hades aren't considered evil. They're considered a natural part of life. People are afraid of Hades because people are afraid of dying. People are afraid of the fates for the same reason, but they're never seen as evil. So it is interesting that Grover is perhaps playing on to the theory that Chiron has about Hades being the true thief and being evil and turning against the gods. So, um, you know, like, interesting that even now, these people that are in the service of death, which is a very natural part of life, are being painted in this evil brush, and it goes to further the, the rational anger that Hades has about his brothers and the fact that he is being seen as this god of dark like well, I guess he is like a god of darkness but he is being seen as this dark and villainous god when in fact he is just doing a natural process of human life and that that does not make him a bad person Thank you, demigods and mortal listeners alike, for embarking on this mythological journey with me through Chapter 2, Three Old Ladies Knit the Socks of Death. I hope this episode was as fun for you as it was for me. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to like and subscribe if you're watching this on YouTube, and to give me a rating re and review if you are listening to this on other audio platforms. I am always looking for ways to improve, and thank you again for your support. Remember that whether you are a child of Olympus or a mere mortal, the adventure doesn't end here. If you're interested in more of my thoughts on reading and writing in general, you can check me out on Medium at Jared Chaw or follow me on Twitter slash X at Jared Chaw. Of course, I also post on this YouTube channel as well at Jared A. Chaw. On there, I post content ranging from book reviews to character analysis to writing discussions as I work towards putting out one of my own books into the world. And with all my plugging done, all I have left to say is that this has been Jared Shaw from the Half-Blood Hills Show signing off and have a great rest of your day. Bye.